Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Glad to be with you this morning, glad to open God's Word with you. To those I may not know, my name is John. To those I do know, I'm glad to be with you again. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can open it to Exodus chapter 6. If you do not own a copy of God's Word, you're welcome to take one. There are some on the table over there, even a couple for kids if you need one. Uh, Black Bibles over there. If you have an electronic copy, whatever you're doing to get God's Word in front of you, get a copy of God's Word in front of you and turn to Exodus chapter 6. We have journeyed so far through Exodus, focusing on God who delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. I intend to keep that in front of us. The Bible declares this of God. It's not just the book of Exodus, but it is strong in the book of Exodus. In his deliverance of the children of Israel from the burden and bond of Egypt, God has said it will take a mighty hand to compel Pharaoh to let Israel go. Uh, We saw that back in Exodus chapter 3, and to this point, we have still not seen Pharaoh budge in letting Israel go. In fact, at this point, we have already seen him say, I will not let them go. As we come out of chapter 6 and as we go into chapter 7, I want to just encourage us as Moses and Aaron enter into Pharaoh's presence, I want to encourage us with this very ominous to the enemies of God statement. I hope that made sense to you. I want to encourage us with this very ominous to the enemies of God statement. As Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh, the mighty hand is moving. And Pharaoh is only going to run so far. Would you please read with me? We're going to read Exodus 6, verses, uh, verses verse 28 through 7, verse 13. <clears throat> On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Chapter 7, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. And your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. And your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt And bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old. And Aaron, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. 
So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men, the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful to be in worship of our great and glorious God. Father, we come to a moment, a preaching and teaching moment, where every heart and every mind, including my own, is in need of the Holy Spirit's instruction. I thank you, Father, for your word, and I thank you, Father, for the message that you have worked out through me to deliver to these people. I pray, Father, that you would speak to me as you speak to them. I pray, God, that we would gain an understanding today from your word of how to live as your people, and perhaps, I pray, God, that someone would come to be numbered among your people through our testimony and through our preaching and through our worship this day. God, I pray that as your word is proclaimed, I pray that you would humble sinners to repentance and to salvation. I pray, Father, that holiness would be promoted among your people, and I pray, God, that Christ the Savior would be exalted. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I titled the sermon today. You can see it. I know down in, at the end of, the cha- of this section, what is it? It's in... <clears throat> Uh, verse 6, and it is also down in verse 10, <coughs> just as the Lord commanded. My goal today, I like giving you these goals. Somebody probably is thinking, Pastor, you never used to do this. All of a sudden, after five years, now every week, you're like stating goals and purposes, and what's the point? The point is, I believe that God has given me a purpose in preaching. And I believe that when God's word is opened, it's a pur- this is not just a lecture where you listen to some guy talk who studied some material. There is a purpose for why we are gathering today. There is a purpose for the preaching of God's word. And I've just been, I've just, I've learned, praise God, that the preaching of God's word should come with purpose. And so I've been asking God as I work through crafting, I guess, a message in the spirit and in prayer, I ask God, Father, would you reveal the purpose for this text to those that will gather before me. And so that's why we're doing that these days. That's why you hear something similar to that each week when I preach. I simply think it's important for you to know where we're going as we journey through the text. Today my goal is this, to help us understand biblically why people harden themselves and live hardened to God. Why do people harden themselves and why do people live hardened to God? And what should we, the people of God, do about it? I made a little note after that little intro. What do we do? We all know them. Every single person in this room knows someone who is dead set against the things of God. I'm not talking about, I'm not interested. I'm talking about they're hard and calloused. 
to the things of God, to the people of God. Maybe this is a family member, maybe it's a friend, a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker. I don't know, but we all know them. And as God's people, we should know what to do about them. I think, as it did for me, you'll be surprised at what we should do. I think I was surprised. Exodus chapter 6. God says through Moses, writing the instructions of the Holy Spirit, reminds us, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord, go to Pharaoh, tell him all that I've commanded you. This couple of verses here, 28 through 30, is on the backside of the genealogies from last week. You remember we spent a long time laboring through the genealogy of really Aaron, but the Bible subheading that you might have says the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. We labored through that and we talked about how some view that as an interruption to the narrative that's happening. We've read all the way through chapter 6, then this genealogy, then we're going to come out of it, and that's what Moses is doing. He's come through the genealogy, which we talked last week. The original readers of this, the people of Israel in ancient times, wouldn't have been interrupted. That would have been very important to them. They would have read through that diligently, but as they come out of it, the Holy Spirit uses Moses to record, but don't forget, this is where we are. And I think it's very important. There was a lot of very positive feedback from last week's uh, message, Whatever it was, there was positive feedback from it. I want, to, I want to caution us with this. The Bible also says don't get caught up in useless genealogies. You can waste a lot of time on stuff that you're not supposed to waste time on. This is important. It's in here. We looked at it, and Moses has recorded it. It was important enough that God had him record it, but now we're moving on. We're done with that. And so he's reminding us, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. You can underline that if you want to, or even just circle in Egypt. The reason that's important is because the message that God is speaking now to Moses is very similar to what he spoke to Moses back on the mountain. And so now we're taking note that God is saying the same thing to Moses in Egypt, that he said on the mountain, you're going to Pharaoh and you're going to do this. On the same day, on the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said, go to Pharaoh and tell him to go. But Moses said, remember, he's struggling with his self-confidence in the Lord. He shouldn't, but he is. How many people want to raise their hands right now, right? Yep. Oh man, me too, pastor. Right. He's struggling. Behold, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips, which we talked about weeks ago. Is not him saying that he stutters. It's not him saying that he had a speech impediment, though maybe he did. It's much more the reality of him saying, I am not sharp-tongued enough to enter into Pharaoh's courts and hold debate with anyone there. You need someone better. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to him, but Moses said to him, this is the second interaction of God telling Moses what to do. The second time, he's making clear what he is to do. If there's one note that you want to make, it's this. God is clear in his direction to us. This is the second interaction between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. As we step into chapter 7, they've already been before Pharaoh, I think a lot of us, because we probably like television shows and movies way too much, think that Moses and Aaron on their return to Egypt go in before Pharaoh and they're throwing down staffs and they're making water turn to blood and they're calling in flies and darkness and thunder and hail and all this stuff is happening, but they've already been to him. This is the second time that they are going in before Pharaoh. 
Back in Exodus chapter 5, verse 9, we see them going before Pharaoh. And back in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, God says to Moses, do all the signs that I have put in your power to do before Pharaoh. He's done those. Now he's going to do something else. He's going again before Pharaoh. And then God situates, so to speak, for Moses. And then Moses records it for us so that there is no misunderstanding as to the major figures of the narrative. So there is no misunderstanding as to their priority in the narrative. God says, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. People are like, well, we're not, we can't be God though. No, but when God says, see, I have made you like God, he's illustrating something. You're going to go before him and he's going to go, what? Whoa. He's going to encounter something, Moses, because I've made you like me to you. I've made you to him. You are to go to him. And look at the ordering here. You are going to be like God in this story, Moses, and your brother's going to be like you. He's quick-tongued and he's sharp as a tack to say everything I've said to respond and to handle this. So I'm going to talk to you. You're going to talk to Aaron. He's going to talk in front of Pharaoh. And that's the order of what we're going to do and how we're going to go into Pharaoh and have him release the people. Everybody said, yeah? What's it have to do with us? Well, it's interesting. If you are here today as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I hope you are, I hope that you have placed your faith and every confidence in the completed work of Christ on the cross. I hope that you are living a life of repentance toward God and of faith in Jesus Christ. There is a similar order for us today as Christians. Even for me, or whoever may stand in this place opening this word, we're not in charge of the message, do you understand? We are messengers. I don't get to make it up. That's why I preach this way through a book of the Bible. That's why we try and squeeze out every last drop we can get from every chapter and every verse because it's not my message. I'm not clever enough sometimes to even tie my shoes, let alone figure out how to talk about the Word of God, the most sacred of writings. Interesting. A similar order for us today. Hebrews chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but write it down. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. says that long ago God spoke by the prophets. Spoke to our fathers by the prophets. He says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. There is a, an authority, there is a message being relayed, and there is an order to that authority. Christ has made all that man needs to know about God, known about God. I'm going to say it again because this is important. Christ has made everything that man needs to know about God known. There is nothing more for us to find out that we need to know about God. It has been made known. Do we know everything about God? No, we do not. God has reserved things about himself that is not necessary for us to know. Everything that he wants us to know has been made known through Jesus Christ. Christ has made all that man needs to know about God known. How? One, because he is the Son of God and he is God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God, and he has, John would later say in verse 18, he has made God known to us as his people. We have a message to speak. 
as we journey through the story of Moses being before Pharaoh, I want us to understand that this is also our story. We are looking at a predecessor of our story. We're looking and learning from someone who did what we are also called to do. As his people, we are to speak a message. We are to speak what he has instructed. If you are making things up about what the Bible says, you're not declaring God's word. You are declaring a lie. We speak God's message and nothing else. We are, do you understand? Look at, look at verse 1. Look what it says. See, I have made you God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. What are the players? God, Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh. Where do we find ourselves? Somewhere in between or surrounding Moses and Aaron, because we're definitely not God, and I pray we're not Pharaoh. So Moses and Aaron are instructed in what to say. They are to go before Pharaoh. They are to say what God has commanded them to say. And do you ever have somebody ask you about your faith and you don't know how to answer them? Does that ever happen to you? Yeah, it happens all the time. I want to challenge you. And this was a step on my toes before yours. When we don't know what to say when someone asks us, it's because we have not paid attention to the instructions God has given us regarding what we are to say. You want to know how to answer the person that has questions in your life? I can give you no greater counsel than consume more of God's word. I, can, I cannot help you in any greater way when you say these people they have questions and I don't know what to do. I can give you no greater help than to say more of God's word, more prayer, more of God's word. I, yeah, I can talk with you. I can help you. I can counsel you. But I'm going to do that and I'm going to send you out as I am sent out by the good shepherd as a lamb among wolves. And you're going to have to stand with your friends or neighbors or family or whoever. And you're going to have to use words. And they should never be, well, my pastor says. I don't want you quoting me. I don't want you saying, well, I, my pastor said, no, stop. You've weakened your argument already as much as you can weaken it. Why? Because, because pastor is no authority. God's word is the authority, and we are to speak what God's word says. Every situation of life, every problem that we face is all addressed within God's word. As his people, we are to speak a message as he has instructed us to speak. We are like Moses and like Aaron, and we are sent to those like Pharaoh. What is the message? At its core, it is the gospel. Mark 16, 15, go into the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. You're not going to find a place where you can't take the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm not sure if I should share that here. I'm not sure if that's what they need right now. I'm not sure if they're ready to hear it. What? Stop. Stop. That's the message you've been given. Don't send well wishes, don't send thoughts, don't send prayers. Send the good news of Jesus Christ. And what is the gospel? We talk about it a lot. I hope that you know, I hope you can, I hope you have at least, like, I hope you have some kind of method of remembering the gospel. I'm going to give you a simple one here this morning. I've never used it. It's not one that I personally use, but in that I am not locked into any one method when it comes to relating the gospel, I have this one for you. It's perhaps one of the most popular. And when I say it, some of them will be like, I know this one. What is the simplest way to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ? God, man, Christ, response. That simply. God, man, Christ, response. You can write it down if you want to. I need to remember the gospel. I need to know the gospel in a better way. Write this down and perhaps it helps you memorize and lock in these great truths. We are God's messengers. We have been instructed as to what to speak. 
You must speak the good news. You must know the good news to speak it. God, the Father, infinite and holy, righteous and true, sinless, creator of all things, sustainer of all things, before whom there is no other, after there will be no one else, next to there is no one. He is God and he is God alone, Father in heaven, perfect creator, man, God's creation. I don't know how well you've ever paid attention to the Genesis account of creation. Man is like the pinnacle of what God does in creation. Makes everything. Makes it all. In Genesis 1.31, behold, it was all good. Makes man, and what's he do? Hey, man. <laughs> hey, man. What's he do? Puts him over everything. Why? Because he is the crowning achievement of God's creation. Not that God had anything to achieve or anything to prove, but he made man. And what did he do with man? He set his affection on them. I want you to think about that. Somebody in the room needs to realize that God has set his affection on mankind. But in the beauty of Eden, there was the ability for man to sin because God said, you may eat of everything that's in the garden, except you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. And so what happens? Perfect creation is given the ability to sin or to not sin. And we know Eve looked one day too long, Satan tempting her own desire when she saw that the fruit was desirable to make one wise. Satan only tempting, did God really say you would die? Satan really only tempting and challenging the character of God, which should be your first clue that whatever you're hearing is not from God. She takes it and eats. Her husband there with her eats also. And the Bible says sin came into the world. Man created in the image of God, created good, Behold, all his creation was very good, eating the fruit that was forbidden by God. What did they do? It has nothing to do with the fruit. It could have been, you can go anywhere you want, but don't cross that line. It could have been any number of things, but it was, don't eat that fruit from that tree. Don't do that. And the day you do, you'll ruin everything, Adam. It'll be great. Not at all. Man, created in the image of God, created holy, with God, sinned in the Garden of Eden. Listen, if your gospel presentation does not include sin, you're not presenting the gospel. If you're not getting to the brokenness of mankind, you're not presenting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Man, created in the image of God, sinned, now separated from God. In our separation from God, we are under the judgment hand of God. The sinful man is only awaiting the wrath of God. As the Bible says, it will come on all those who live in disobedience. God, man, Christ. Oh, the blessed good news. How many people sitting here thinking about your sin and thinking about how awful you may have been or maybe you are right now, but you know Christ. And you can come to a place in your life where you say, I have been, and at times I am, an awful sinner. I fall, I'm tempted, I sin. Our sins, they are many. We just sang it. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. The wrath of God on sin fully satisfied in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The propitiation. Listen, you want to understand Christ in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, 4, and 5 is where I've told you to live. It's the simplest biblical passage to memorize for the gospel. What's it say? Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to the scripture. He appeared to many. He ascended into heaven. 
the gospel in a nutshell. God, man, Christ. Christ is the only satisfaction on sin. Man cannot atone for it. Only Christ. One day Christ will return. He will judge all of mankind from all time for all eternity. God, man, Christ, and response. Christ simply says in the gospel, who do you say I am? Is Christ the Son of God? Is he the sacrifice for sin? Have you believed on Jesus Christ? Christ, God, man, Christ, response. Will you, through faith in Jesus Christ, live a life directed by God's word? Will you surrender and repent of and walk away from sinful ways? And will you turn to the life-giving truth and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? We find ourselves, like Moses and Aaron, with a message to go before those who are like Pharaoh. Maybe you have a Pharaoh in your life. Let's take a look at Pharaoh. Look what he says. In Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 through 9, God says this, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And we've talked about already in the past on a number of occasions how wonderful it must have been for Moses to know, hey, go do this, but I'm going to make it really hard for you. Why? Because God and Pharaoh are at war with one another, and Pharaoh's not even going to come close to winning. God is going to win every battle that he will ever have, and he's never had because he authored all things. Pharaoh's hard heart is a part of God's plan. God is the self-proclaimed author of all things and of all people. Probably want to write that down. God is the self-proclaimed author of all things and of all people. Pharaoh's hard heart is a part of God's plan. And we first see God's plan manifested, as I said, back in Exodus 3, verse 19, where God said it will take a, a mighty hand to compel Pharaoh to let Israel go. Again, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, God tells Moses, go and do all the signs before Pharaoh that I've given you, but know this, I will harden his heart. So now there's this struggle of, man, how impossible for Moses to do what God has told him to do while God is saying he's going to make it hard for him to do what he's told him to do. And all God's people said, yeah, what do we do with that? God has said, go do this, and while you do, I'm going to make it really difficult for you. How's your witness going with people? Is it going really easy? Is it smooth? Go before Pharaoh. I will harden his heart. Look what is said. Look at the words. Moses is supposed to go in again now with another sign. He's to show him another sign because he showed him one already and he didn't listen. I won't listen. I don't care who's God. I don't know. We're right, We're right and it's good for us to remember the position of Pharaoh before God. Look back in Exodus chapter 5. You probably have to turn one page. Look at Verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let him go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. What is he saying? Who is he? I don't know him, and I won't obey him. Why? We've talked about Pharaoh is set up in ancient times as God. Pharaoh is a God in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh is worshipped in the land of Egypt. He's like, I don't know this God. Of all the gods I have, he's not named. And he must be really insignificant if he's your God because you're under me and I'm a God. You understand? You start to get the picture of Pharaoh and where he's at. His heart is hard. God is hardening his already hard, resistant heart. Pharaoh's position is very important. 
Look what God says, though, of what he's going to do. Verse 3, I will multiply. Though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Just think about the words for a minute. Though I do this, he won't listen. He goes on. I will lay my hand on Egypt. I mean, you know what that means, right? This isn't just a... We all use this, the term, don't we? So I can just lay my hands on it. I just get a... Better off I never get my hands on you. What are you doing? Like, you're throwing down with somebody at that point. We miss the righteous justice of God. He's throwing down on Pharaoh and Egypt right now. I'm going to get my hands on Pharaoh and Egypt. I will lay my hand on Egypt. And then look, what does he say? Down in verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt. If that causes you to think about another person in the Bible who says they will know that there is a God, you're right to think about David. And I think that there's not a missed step whatsoever from here to when David says, all the world will know that there's a God in Israel today, for I will feed you, Goliath, to the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and everyone will know there is a God. Same here. Look at what God says. I'll multiply my signs. I will lay my hand on Egypt by great acts of judgment. That should be connected, verse 4. See it there? Pharaoh will not listen to you. That's the end of verse 3. Verse 4 goes on. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. These are all very specific words. We'll talk about them in just a second. I will stretch out my hand against God knows that Pharaoh and Egypt are not his. Moses is about to be learning that Pharaoh and Egypt are not God's. They're opposed to God. They're enemies of God. They are wicked, adulterous, non-God-fearing people. And the Lord here himself is calling out the escalation of what is about to take place. Why? Why is it going to be this escalation? He says, though I multiply my signs, one. I'll lay my hand on them, two. I will stretch out my hand when I stretch out my hand. Like that's an escalation if ever there was one. Here I am with my word. You've seen my signs. And now I will lay my hand on you and you're going to feel, man, maybe you know what it's like to feel the hand of God's judgment come down upon your life if you haven't. Praise God for that. If you have, you're trembling where you sit, thinking about the heavy hand of God's judgment on your life. I'll multiply my signs. I will lay my hand on them. I will stretch out my hand against them. The Lord is calling out the escalation and why. Here's why. It's what we're going to dwell on when we work to apply this text to our lives. God is opposing Pharaoh's pride, number one. God is opposing Pharaoh's pride. Two, he is judging Egypt for their wickedness. You're like, oh man, come on, can we lump all the Egyptians into Pharaoh's actions against God? No, we don't have to do that. Look what God told Moses to tell us about the situation. I will lay my hand on Egypt, out of the land of Egypt. The Egyptians shall know when I stretch my hand out 
against Egypt. This is not just Pharaoh. This is Pharaoh and all his people. God is coming at a wicked and adulterous people in Egypt. God is opposing Pharaoh's pride. He is judging Egypt for their wickedness. And he is, if you paid attention, making himself known. Look what he says. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He's making himself known. Opposing Pharaoh's pride, judging Egypt for their wickedness, and making himself known among them as the Lord. We move out of seven, chapter 7, 3 through 9. We move out of that by God in his foreknowledge, which we cannot get away from, saying, to look, at, look at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, listen guys, when you go in there, Pharaoh might say something like this. I'm not exactly sure, but when you go in before Pharaoh, he might ask this of you. No, when you go in before Pharaoh and when he asks you, how many times has that happened to you? Can you prove your God to me? Yeah, I just did. When you go before Pharaoh, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, that's where we come out of verses 3 through 9, God telling them, do this. Moses will say to Aaron, throw your staff down. Aaron will do it, that it may become a serpent. Listen, uh, I wrote this down. This is one quick note here as we talk about these few verses. God's power is either going to soften or harden people to him or against him. God's power is either going to soften or harden people to him or against him. And people's actions, the fruit of their life, are going to reveal which is happening. Moses and Aaron are to go in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh and the Lord are at odds with one another. His divine knowledge, God has revealed to them what's going to happen. So they go in and we all know this story, don't we? All of us, when we get to heaven, this is one of the, we want to play back this tape and see what happened here. Throw down your staff so it can become a serpent. Cheap trick. How many staffs did they throw down, right? The movies have us thinking that it's three. Television, cartoons, it was, it was three. doesn't say that. says he summoned, look what he says. Pharaoh summoned the wise men, the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt. What do you think Pharaoh was coming with two or three guys? You think it was just like, oh yeah, cool trick, watch these couple dudes. No, I have to imagine, and that's all I can do because the Bible doesn't tell us. I have to imagine that this shot at Pharaoh's pride was enough for him to be like, get all of them. All of the magicians, well, some of them can't. You get them and have them come in here and throw their staves down and show these people how phony they are. However many it was, it doesn't matter. One, ten, a hundred, a thousand, it does not matter. The serpent that was formerly the staff in Aaron's hand consumes every one of them. That's what you need to point out. You don't need to worry about how many it was. You need to point out the middle of verse 12, end of verse 12, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Remember what I told you back in 4.17 to pay attention to that staff? Remember how God called it out to Moses on the mountain? Exodus 4.17, and take in your hand this staff. 
know what's interesting is I dwelled on that verse this past week. We don't know if that's the staff he already had in his hand that was common to a shepherd, or if God was like, no, 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 this one. Take this one. He's supposed to take it. I told you back in Exodus 4, it's a very important piece. We're going to see it come back out more than once. And now it's a full staff because it has swallowed up all of the staves of the magicians of Egypt. We know how Aaron's staff became a serpent, right? Everybody said, power of God. Amen. God's power made that staff a serpent. But what about the staffs of the magicians? And what about the line where it says, They did the same by their secret arts. I am not a, however I say it, it's going to cause question later, so that's fine, just get a hold of me. I'm not a spiritual warfare, kind of, like I'm not out looking for a fight. In fact, God doesn't tell me to look for a fight. God tells me to put on the full armor of God and to stand. That's what God says to do. I never want us for a single moment to think that there is not an incredible, and by incredible, I mean great, not good, that there is an incredibly powerful force that operates in the realm of darkness. And praise God, that I believe, I believe scripture shows us, praise God that God keeps a lot of that from us. We would not be able to handle seeing what is actually happening. But Ephesians reminds us, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, write that down if you want to. Ephesians 6, 12 reminds us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, so no matter how hard it was to come into this room today with whoever you came in here with, We wrestle against, Ephesians tells us, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over present ages, and spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. That's your opponent. And the power is real. There is a power. There is, for all of those fans in the room, a dark side, if you will. And it is real. And we should never, for a single moment, I never want us to underestimate the power that Satan has been given. Has been given. Important note. This is not just Pharaoh's hard heart, throwing down all of these serpents, staves to become serpents. This is not even just a demonstration of Satan's power in the world by their secret arts. That's going to happen again later in chapter 7. In fact, it's verse 22 of the same chapter. By their secret arts. This is ultimately a display of God's authority over evil. That's what we should see in every one of these signs where the Egyptians do what Aaron did but got nowhere. Because their power, I wrote this down. Here's your note. Never be deceived into thinking that God and Satan are power rivals. You're a note taker, write it down. Never be deceived into thinking that God and Satan are power rivals. There's no rivalry happening between God and Satan. God is all-powerful, all-authority, all the time. And Satan has limited power and limited authority for a limited time. There's no real rivalry even happening here. It is simply a demonstration of the power of God. 
in a demonstration of God's power over evil, Aaron's staff. Notice it says that. It caught my attention. Verse 12. Each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Why not Aaron's serpent? Maybe you have a different version of the Bible that says Aaron's serpent swallowed up the other serpents. I don't know. I didn't cross-reference all the different translations. I just wanted to see the power of God over the power of the enemy. The staff Aaron carried swallowed up. We have no idea how many staffs. We know this. Verse 13. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not Listen to them as the Lord had said. You know what just happened? You want to really know what just happened in that verse? The power of God just consumed the pride of Pharaoh. This is, Pharaoh's hardness in this moment is, I'm not going to obey your God. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to do what he says. But now I have no explanation for why the staff your man threw down swallowed up the staffs that my men threw down, and he's hardened to God even more. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. This is God consuming the pride of Pharaoh. This passage is just the beginning of God's judgment on Egypt. How can it help us today? Don't put your Bible away just yet. Remember what I said earlier? What is God doing among the Egyptians? He shows us this escalation. And why? Why? Because he's opposing Pharaoh's pride. Two, he's bringing judgment on Egypt for their wickedness. And three, he is making himself known. How can this help us today? Pastor, you said you want to give us biblical insight into people being hardened and hardening themselves toward God. How does this help us? Well, God is opposing Pharaoh. We see it so clearly. What is the center of a hard heart? We've all had one. We all know. Some young children in the room have maybe not yet figured out how to articulate it, but it's likely that if you're at least, I don't know, even maybe 16 or 18 or whatever years old, it's likely that your reasoning has led you to understand that your hardness of heart, that my hardness of heart, comes from my pride. When I know better than you, I get hardened. I'm not listening. I don't care. I know better. Who are you? This is what we're seeing from Pharaoh. This is precisely what's coming out from Pharaoh. At the center of a hardened heart is an unwillingness to recognize God. It's pride. Pharaoh believes he is God. I wrote down this verse, James chapter 4, verse 6. You know what it says? God opposes the proud. We're going to deal with the rest of the verse in just a second. God opposes the the proud. I can't really expound on that anymore. I'd like to. I'd like to just talk for the next 10 minutes about God opposing the proud, but just listen to the words. God opposes the proud. If you are proud in your heart, if you are arrogant in your life, God is opposed to that and you. There's more of that coming. God is opposed to a hard, proud heart. The Greek word here, I looked it up, literally means to rage in battle against. God is opposed to the proud. Not just like, I don't like it. I want nothing to do with it. Uh, opposed to it. 
I'm coming, here I come, and I'm coming with the, the hammer of my word against your pride, or I'm coming with the hand of my judgment against your pride. God is opposed to the proud. Man, you want to talk about something that pastors fight? Pride is something that pastors fight. I fight it. I'm aware that I do. If you're like, Pastor, I don't think you are aware. No, I'm aware. I fight pride. Sometimes I succeed in putting it to death, and sometimes I really need some help in putting it to death. Maybe you fight pride in your life. I bet you do. You know why? It's ingrained in us. It's what caused Eve to eat the fruit. It's what caused Adam to eat the fruit. In the fall came pride, and every one of us has it, and we all fight it. To rage in battle against. God is not helping you in your pride. He's set against you. Ouch. Christ said, Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Did you catch Pharaoh's actions? Remember how important that was in chapter five? I don't know the Lord. I won't obey. Who is he? Don't care. Not doing it. Mary exclaimed, Luke chapter 1, verse 52, you're like, oh, that's the story of the birth of Christ. You bet it is. And Mary recognized something in what the angel said to her in her exclamation to God, her praise of God on high. She said this, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Pride and God don't coexist. They don't cohabitate, not in any way. Is there help? Yes. If you're here today and you're a proud, hard heart, yes, there is help for you. James 4, 6 goes on. It says, God opposes the proud, but, good word, gives grace. Gives grace to the humble. The biblical directive, if you're here today combating pride in your life, if you're fighting pride, and if you feel hardness of heart at time, which I do, the biblical directive for us is to humble ourselves. James literally goes on. Humble yourselves before God. Humble yourselves under his mighty hand. James 4, 7 through 10 gives us a great, great recipe for combating pride in a hard heart. James 4, 7 through 10. These are the points that come out of it. Submit to God. Resist the devil. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, you double-minded. Change your thinking. Change your direction. Repent and turn away from what you have been doing. Humble yourself. Are you a hard heart? God opposes the proud. Pastor, I, I fight pride in my life. Are you in submission to God's word? That will help you to fight pride and put it away. Are you resisting the devil? That will help you to fight pride and to put it away. Are you drawing near to God? That will help you to fight pride and put it away. In the water of God's word, are you being cleansed? Are you washing your hands and cleansing your mind through the truth, the sustaining cleansing truth of God's word. God is opposing Pharaoh's heart. Are you exalting yourself or humbling yourself before God? He's judging Egypt for their wickedness. And it should never surprise us when God judges wickedness. This should never come as a shock to us. John 16 verses 8 and 9, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit would convict us concerning sin. Why? Because we have not believed in Jesus. This should sit heavy on us. We should be thinking about those who are not in submission to Christ and why they are not in submission to Christ, why they don't believe in Christ. Holy Spirit is going to convict the world concerning sin because the world has not believed in Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel? 
Remember those words earlier? God, man, Christ response. Remember man? Created in God's image, fallen and now separated from God. Mankind as a whole is dwelling under the hand of God. The wrath of God. Ephesians says, Colossians says, the wrath of God is coming. Romans 1 says the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness. This is what's happening. As we journey through Exodus, these are the things that are taking place for us to pay attention to, and they are happening in our day, in our time, perhaps in our lives. I pray not. Romans says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. This is why the good news and the truth of God's word is so vitally important as God's messengers, as God's ambassadors, because sinful men are suppressing the truth of God. It's happening all the time. It's happening everywhere where God's word has no place anymore. Romans 1.32 says that God's righteous decree says that those who practice sin deserve death. That's man and God, man, Christ response. God, as the author of all things and the author of all people, according to his divine knowledge, knows who are his and knows who are not. He's the author of all things and the author of all people. We should think about that. God is the author of all things and all people. Those who are not gods will stubbornly resist him more and more to the end. We have all of God's word to see Pharaoh. He never turns. Despite everything God does, he never turns. Those who are not gods will stubbornly resist him more and more to the end. I wrote this down, though. Let's not just think about those who are stubbornly resisted. Those who are gods, those with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, those living a life of repentance towards God and faith in Christ and following God's word, may, from time to time, harden themselves toward God. We may resist for a time and perhaps even from time to time, we may also resist God. Those who are gods may resist him for a time, perhaps from time to time, but ultimately those who are gods will obey. Pastor, what do I do about people that are hardened or are hardening themselves to God? My, my, my brother my, my neighbor, my coworker, my sister, my mom, my dad, my any, you name it, my kids, name it. Ultimately, they will stubbornly resist to the end or they will be softened and embrace Christ. Those are the only two options. I don't think we think about this. Man, the people that I have sat with and have wept with and have thought about even in my own life that walk through all of their life stubbornly resisting the things of God at every turn and then they die. Why? Why didn't they embrace the truth of Christ? It's right there and it's so simple. There's an answer. God knows who are his. He knows who are not. And those who resist him more and more and more to the end are not his. I can't tell you who that is or who that isn't. But no embrace of Christ, no turning to the truth of God's word, no surrender to the things of God does not, well, I think he was. No, no, you know. You know or you don't if someone has turned to God or they haven't. And God ultimately judges that heart. But we can see fruit in their lives. The judgment of God in this life reveals the work of God in saving a sinner. It's visible. 
It's visible in their life. As God's judgment comes on those who are his, they surrender. You know what this is. I know what this is. I've felt the heavy hand of God on me to the point of, I surrender, Lord. I quit. I surrender before you. And I know those who are walking through life right now saying, I will not surrender. I do not know the Lord. I will not obey. I will not do what God says to do. I will not go to church. I will not read the Bible. I will not be kind to anyone. Think about the manifestation of what's happening in their life as that happens. Oh, praise God for those who stubbornly refuse to the point that all of a sudden they don't. Praise God for those lives who have lived, and they're, in it, and they're again. Those who are God's. Listen, we don't think about these words that come from Hebrews enough. Jesus Christ is able to save his own to the uttermost. The work of Christ will not fail. God knows who are his, he knows who are not, and he will not fail in saving those who are his. He will not. He cannot. If he does, he's not God. But he is God, and he will not fail in his saving work. The day is coming. The Lord will stretch out his hand against sin in the world, and he will judge. In that day, there will be no working of signs. We see here, though I multiply my signs, I lay my hand, I stretch out my hand. In that day, you know what's going to happen? Revelation tells us in that day, people are going to resist even more and not repent. And they'll be destroyed in the eternal fire of hell. Is there help? Yeah. This is why the warning cry sounds across the pages of Scripture. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Obey the truth of God's word. Surrender and obey the truth of God's word. The only escape from the wrath of God is to repent of sin and trust Christ by faith. That's it. You cannot escape on your own. You can't build your way out. You can't fight your way out. There's nothing you can do to escape the wrath of God other than to stand in the blood flow of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross and say, I believe, forgive me. There is no other alternative Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice for sin. He is the only atonement, the only appeasement of God's wrath on sin. What must I do? I hope somebody here today is asking, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? Christ says, repent and believe the gospel. He's opposing Pharaoh's heart. He's judging Egypt for their wickedness and he is making himself known among them and God is still making himself known. Christian, if there's one thing I want Christians in the room to hear today, God is still making himself known. And I want you to understand your vital role in that part. God is making himself known. How? Two ways. By his word. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. This is never going to go anywhere. It is established. If man was able to eradicate every copy of this from the, from the face of planet Earth, that means nothing in removing it from the heavens. And God, I've watched it happen in Jeremiah. If you're reading the Bible in your reading plan, the word of Jeremiah written by Berechiah, I think, no, Baruch, goes to the king. They read it all and it says the king took a knife and would cut page by page and would burn it and throw it into the pot because it was cool in the palace. You know what happened? He went back to Jeremiah. He's like, take the word. I sure did. What happened? Ah, he cut it up and he burned it. You know what happened? You know what happened in the story? It's so fantastic. God says to Jeremiah, write down all the words I told you the first time. 
Didn't go anywhere, didn't change anything, just revealed the hardness of that man's heart. And here comes God's word right back to where it was. He could still do that today because his word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Psalm 119, verse 89. Isaiah, Luke, Mark, and Peter, four different men. Remember, the Bible says something twice, pay attention. If it says it more than twice, really pay attention. Four different men, four different books, all saying the word of the Lord endures forever. Though the grass fades and the flowers fall and man is just like that, the word of God remains forever. As long as faithful men proclaim God's word, he is being known still by Moses, by the prophets, through the Psalms. The word of Jesus Christ is still resounding. He is known and made known by his word and he is known and made known by his creation. Romans 1 says that what can be known about God is plain because God has made it known. I don't don't know anything about God. You can. What there is to know about God has been made plain for us to know. Romans 1.20 goes on and says, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they, man, are without excuse. No man will stand before God on the day of judgment and say, I didn't know you were real. I didn't know there was a God. I had no idea. God has been clearly perceived since the creation of the world, and he still is today. Christian, this is really important for us. God is made known in the world by his word and by his creation. And what has he called us to do? Moses, Aaron, go into Pharaoh and speak to them the words that I have commanded you. Do all that I have instructed you. Christian, the call comes to us. Are you making God known? Are you doing what we have been instructed to do? Are you being witnesses for the testimony of Jesus Christ in the world? By the power of his spirit, according to the truth of his word, God uses the voice of the Christian to speak to hardened hearts. And those hearts will either soften or they will harden. We speak the truth of God and we leave the rest to the work of God. There are far too many of us, myself included, who know a hard person, who know a hard heart, and what have you wanted to do? I want to be the hammer and the chisel on their hardened heart of stone. You're not called to be that. In fact, God says of his word that it is the hammer that breaks apart the rocks. What are you supposed to do? Dwell in the word of Christ. You have hardened hearts around you. You have people that are hardening or are hardened to the word of God. Are you heralding the Lord Jesus Christ or are you passively doing nothing? Are you disobeying? Moses and Aaron obeyed and it seemed pointless for them. Consider the shoes of Moses and Aaron were doing this and nothing is happening. All creation testifies. Are you joining that song? As we see Pharaoh, in closing, I wrote this, as we see Pharaoh harden his heart in the face of God's power, and as Moses and Aaron continue on in what they have been instructed to do, it says twice, just as the Lord commanded. As they carry on what they've been instructed to do, we gain insight as to how we should live among those who are hardening or have hardened themselves toward God. What do we do? We carry on just as as the Lord commanded, proclaiming, heralding, preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, that God demonstrated his love in sending his son to die for sinful man, 
and we leave the rest to God. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us, God. In our broken state, Father, we are even prone to pride in thinking that we can be the tool that is used to soften a hardened heart. Forgive us. Only you can do that work. You may use us in that work, but it's yours. Father, I pray that you would increase our boldness, our knowledge, our witness of who you are. Father, that those who are around us of hardened or hardening heart, God, that we would be faithful with your word. I pray that we, as Moses and Aaron, would be faithful. Just as they were commanded, I pray, God, that we also would do just as you have commanded and proclaim and live to the glory of your name and the advance of the gospel in this world. God be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.